compose for the wedding. Wow. <laughs> all right. We don't have time to listen to all of it, much as I would love to. Uh, but it is, this is the day that the Lord has made. And it, I will send you the link uh, when I send everything out. But it is gorgeous and glorious and really well worth listening to and intimately connected to what we're going to be talking about tonight. So with that, let me say a prayer for us and we will jump right in. Father, we thank you for this night. I thank you for people coming out in the midst of dreary weather. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds uh, so that we might hear um, these words that Lewis has written tonight and that you might use them in such a way that we would be drawn more and more into the things of your kingdom. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, I know it sounds like I say this every time, but um, this letter is really amazing. And if we can get our heads even a quarter of the way around everything that's in this letter, for most of it, at least for me, it would be transformational. So uh, with that, uh, let's jump into our scripture verse and say that together. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is one of the great verses in the Bible about spiritual warfare, and I just want to reiterate how proactive it is. It is not passive. It is proactive. So, again, why are we studying this book today, this book that was written uh, 60 years ago? First, great lessons on understanding the battle in which we find ourselves. Secondly, lessons on what it means to think Christianly. A lot of us, if you're like me, have trouble thinking at all, let alone trying to figure out what lens you're thinking through. And this book is really helpful with that. Lessons on the psychology of temptation. Lessons on habits to cultivate that deepen our faith in Christ and then living a boldly Christian life. And this importance of habits, uh, letter 13 gets at, and that word habits shows up over and over and over again. And the reason for that is that we can have any amount of good thoughts and good intentions, but just like that old proverb says, 
what's paved with good intentions? The path to hell, the road to hell hell is paved with good intentions. And a lot of what this book is about is how we have one life in our mind of what kind of person we think we are and what we think we would like to do. And what we actually do and the way we actually live is very different from that. And then much of that is defined by our habits. So this book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction, which I highly recommend to you. Lent is coming up. That would be a great book to read during Lent. Um, I love this quotation. He says, only when your habits are constructed to match your worldview do you become someone who doesn't just know about God and neighbor, but someone who actually loves God and neighbor. So uh, we're going to run through very quickly some of the habits we've talked about to annoy the devil. The basic idea here is that we're looking at in these letters where Screwtape is trying to instruct Wormwood, this demon, about how to tempt the patient away from being a Christian. We're trying to look at the things that Screwtape is saying, by no means let him do this, because those are the kinds of things that if we do them, presumably will make for spiritual health and welfare. So, Um, From letter 10, choose your friends wisely because you become your friends. Cultivate authenticity and speak the truth and love. Those of you who were around when John Dixon was here last week, authenticity was one of the things he talked about, how uh, in the world today, many, many people associate Christians with hypocrisy and judgment and not with authenticity and certainly not with love. Thirdly, remember daily that your faith requires you to make choices. It's not a once-for-all thing. Live purposefully, avoiding the seduction of worldly vanities. Cultivate an integrated life rather than a spiritual-secular split. Don't be compartmentalized, which is the disease of our age. And then be deliberate about living out your priorities. And then from letter 11, avoid constantly surrounding yourself in person or virtually with scoffers. I'm not going to ask how much time you spend on the internet or with social media, but a lot of what is out there on the internet and social media would fall in the category of scoffing. Um, It's not uh, usually stuff that is going to encourage you to pursue what is true, beautiful, and good. Brian, do you take questions or not? Not usually. Can I just ask If it's really quick. Yes. Is it called the common rule habits of purpose? Yes, it's on the table over there. So that will help you. But if you have a question, write it down or type it in your phone, and I'm happy to talk to you afterwards. Um, So the second thing, cultivate joy. And we've talked about that word cultivate is a big word. It doesn't mean just think about it. It means do work, like cultivating a crop. Um, Joy is connected with music and heaven. And according to this book, one of the great images he uses is the person that's experiencing spiritual joy, Satan and the demons just go crazy because there's an opaque cloud that surrounds them and they can't get to them, which means we should want that. Thirdly, plan regular times of fun that promote love, fellowship, courage, and contentment. This is something that seems sort of mundane, But one of the things that has gotten lost in our culture is planning to do things with people. 
Um, particularly the younger you are, people live more and more in the moment, and so they usually end up with the lowest common denominator of what to do, which is often just going up King Street. And the, the problem with that is that, that that doesn't encourage love, fellowship, courage, and contentment. Um, then the next one, avoid the use of humor and sarcasm as a socially acceptable mask for cruelty to others. This is another disease of our age where people can say all sorts of appalling things to other people and say, oh, I didn't really mean it. I was just kidding. And then lastly, flee from flippancy. Learn to recognize it and do not allow the devil's armor to attach to you. Flippancy is the refusal to be serious about anything. And again, that is a disease of our age. Um, the interesting thing is that's the only letter where armor is talked about, not from God's standpoint, but from Satan's. And he says that the flippant person has armor on that protects him from God, uh, because he will never engage with things of the spiritual world. Letter 12, be aware of your spiritual trajectory. We talked about the sailboat setting its course. If you get even a degree off, that won't cause you too much trouble in Charleston Harbor, but if you're sailing to England, um, it's going to get you in serious trouble. Um, when you experience dim uneasiness spiritually, pray that God would open your eyes and lead you to any needful repentance. Dim uneasiness, a sense that something is wrong, our tendency is to stuff that down under the busyness of our schedule and ignore it rather than look at where we might be getting off track and what God might want to speak to us. When you experience reluctance to enter God's presence, remind yourself of the truth of Scripture expressed in the parable of the prodigal son. Most of us have bought into the cultural lie um, that if you do something wrong, God is mad at you and he's waiting to catch you so he can beat you up. Uh, but what scripture actually says is that when you screw up, God is out there looking for you, waiting for you to come back so he can enfold you in his embrace. It is very different from that other view. Then fourthly, invest in healthy and outgoing activities that lead to joy and avoid isolation. We live in a culture that is cocooning more and more and more that people hole up by themselves rather than being with others. And that is not what we were designed for. Some truths about spiritual warfare from that letter. Be aware of the power of nothing as used by the devil. And we've talked about this a lot in class, but the whole idea is that we usually think of the devil as proactively trying to get you to do something really awful, which is sort of the next part. Um, but Satan is much more likely to rely on a slow and gradual turning rather than a spectacular sin. Like with Cynthia Patterson, he is not going to probably have Cynthia go in and murder one of her preschool students. That is probably not going to happen. Although it may have crossed her mind from time to time. But little things can get her perhaps on the slippery slope. So all of us are like that. We tend to think, well, I didn't murder anyone, or I didn't commit adultery or whatever. And so we think, well, I'm not so bad. But we're not aware that all of these little things that are parts of our lives but are dragging us away from God are ways that Satan is trying to come after us. 
From letter 13, as soon as you become aware you've strayed, repent and return to the Lord. Embrace real pleasures that focus your heart and mind on beauty, truth, and goodness. Beauty, truth, and goodness used to be a major part of what it meant to be a Christian and to live in fellowship. And it used to also be something that was a major part of culture that artists and writers aspired to beauty, truth, and goodness, but that is largely gone, so you have to seek after it. Thirdly, cultivate those pleasures and gifts that are part of God's design for you, and we talked about that scene in that old movie, Chariots of Fire, with the runner um, who is also a missionary, and his sister wants him to go straight to the mission field, and he says, yes, I will go to the mission field, but for now, I'm going to run, because God made me fast, And when I run, I can feel his pleasure. (coughs) What that means is leaning into those gifts that God has given you. So often, we want to be someone else. We want someone else's gifts, and we reject the gifts that God has given us. And the more that we lean into God's design, the more joy we will find. The next one, avoid seeking after worldly trends and fashions at the expense of what you truly love. Uh, This is one of those things where we sometimes are embarrassed by what we like, and so we pretend that we like things that are more sophisticated or more cool, Um, and Lewis says that is a very slippery slope. And then be proactive in forming new habits based upon repentance rather than wallowing in self-absorption. Screwtape loves wallowing. Um, The more he can get us to just wallow and think, Oh, it's terrible that I did that. Oh, it's terrible that I did that. Oh, it's terrible that I did that. Oh, let me tell you how terrible it was that I did that. The more that we do that, we just wallow and we don't ever move on. So the longer we can stay wallowing, the happier screw tape is. And then some more truths from that letter. God loves you enormously as an individual. That remark is going to get screw tape in trouble later on um, with the bureaucracy of hell. Um, But part of the theology underlying that, which is what the scriptures teach, is the more that you lean into your relationship with God, the more truly you become your authentic self. If you believe that God is the one who made you, then the closer you are to him, the more likely you are to be living out the way that he has made you that will cause you to experience joy. And then from letter 14 last week, practice daily and hourly dependence on God. One of the problems that we have, particularly as Americans, is we tend to be fiercely independent people. We like to say, I don't need your help, thank you so much. I've got this under control. But what scripture tells us is that the heart is deceitful above all things and that we need to be reminded him and his word. Secondly, cultivate and practice true humility, a radical focus on God and others rather than (coughs) yourself. And this misquoted uh, aphorism from C.S. Lewis, uh, I'm going to use even though he didn't actually (coughs) say this, uh, because I think it sums up what he said very well. The true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. And I think the idea is that 
True humility means self-forgetfulness because you are so focused on others, you are interested in others, you view each person as a gift that God has given you and that you are focused on their needs and not just on what you want all of the time. Uh, The next one, avoid narcissism. Narcissism, uh, sometime when you have time, just go read some articles from Psychology Today about incidents of narcissism. It is really interesting because it used to be the curve for narcissism was kind of like that. And then about 10 years ago, it's just really increased remarkably. So uh, it's something that we fall into even when we think, well, I'm not a narcissist. Uh, it's almost celebrities. Well, it's always, it's always those other people. Yes. Uh, or it might be us. Uh, but part of narcissism, that wallowing that I was just talking about, is so narcissistic. We don't think about it that way, but it really is. And when we know somebody that's wallowing in the pit of despair, you know, we usually feel sorry for them. And, you know, that's good to feel sorry for them. But what we really need to do is help them stop wallowing um, instead of just listening to it all of the time. Uh, because what happens is the more you wallow in self-contempt and selfish malaise, you keep thinking, I am the center of the world. And the longer you think that, the more difficult it is for you to be able to climb out of that pit. Fourthly, practice joyful celebration of wonder in others, in nature, in life that leads to gratitude. And this is closely related to the fifth one, cultivate a high appreciation of the doctrine of creation. We walk around all the time, and our sense of wonder is just deadened for most of us. And some of you will remember an exercise we did two years ago when we marched out of here and went out and stood in the churchyard and just looked at three trees that were in different (coughs) stages of budding, Meanwhile, the people on the ghost tour thought we were some kind of cult. Uh, it was great. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at those trees, I mean, most of us just walk by and say, oh, that's such a nice tree, if we notice it at all. But if you stop and look at it, and you look at the different leaf structures, the different size and color of the blossoms, the scents, all of those kinds of things, it really is just overwhelming the amount of beauty and detail that's in those things. If you haven't been to Middleton Plantation lately, I would highly encourage you to go while while all the camellias are blooming because it is a great example of what Lewis called profligate beauty, which is one of his proofs of the existence of God, where there's beauty that is unnecessary from an evolutionary standpoint. So you might say, maybe there might be one camellia, maybe there might maybe be a need for a camellia, but the fact that there are hundreds of them with all of this variety and all these different colors and shapes um, is just amazing. So this last little quotation from Mere Christianity is a great one about humility, which was the theme of that letter 14. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious 
of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So, lots to think about there. So, even more to think about in letter 15. This letter is so rich. I hope that you will spend time at home thinking about it because I'm not going to be able to do it justice. So, letter 15. My dear Wormwood, I had noticed, of course, that the humans were having a lull in their European war. Remember, this is World War II when he's writing. What they naively call the war. And I'm not surprised that there's a corresponding lull in the patient's anxieties. Do we want to encourage this or to keep him worried? Tortured fear and stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. Our choice between them raises important questions. The humans live in time, but our enemy destines them to eternity. He, therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment, and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered them. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on their eternal union with or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. Our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present. With this in view, we sometimes tempt a human, say a widow or a scholar, to live in the past. But this is of limited value, for they have some real knowledge of the past, and it has a determinate nature and to that extent resembles eternity. It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already, so that thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them, so that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the thing least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of unrealities. No, sorry. Temporal part of time. It is the most completely temporal part of time. For the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. Hence, the encouragement we have given to all those schemes of thought, such as creative evolution, scientific humanism, or communism, which fix men's affections on the future, on the very core of temporality. Hence, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past, and love to the present. Fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead. Do not think lust an exception. When the present pleasure arrives, the sin, which alone interests us, is already over. The pleasure is just the part of the full process which we regret and would exclude if we could do so without losing the sin. It is the part contributed by the enemy and therefore experienced in a present. This sin, which is our contribution, looked forward. 
To be sure, the enemy wants men to think of the future too, just so much as is necessary for now planning the acts of justice or charity, which will probably be their duty tomorrow. The duty of planning the morrow's work is today's duty. Though its material is borrowed from the future, the duty, like all duties, is in the present. This is not straw-splitting. He does not want men to give the future their hearts to place their treasure in it. We do. His ideal is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, if that is his vocation, watches his mind to the whole subject, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment that is passing over him. But we want a man hag-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present, if by doing so we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other, dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes whose end he will not live to see. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future every real gift which is offered them in the present. It follows then in general and other things being equal that it's better for your patient to be filled with anxiety or hope, it doesn't matter much which, about this war than for him to be living in the present. But the phrase living in the present is ambiguous. It may describe a process which is really just as much concerned with the future as anxiety itself. Your man may be untroubled about the future, not because he's concerned with the present, but because he has persuaded himself that the future is going to be agreeable. As long as that is the real course of his tranquility, his tranquility will do us good because it is only piling up more disappointment and therefore more impatience for him when his false hopes are dashed. If, on the other hand, he is aware that horrors may be in store for him and is praying for the virtues wherewith to meet them, and meanwhile concerning himself with the present, because there and there alone all duty, all grace, all knowledge, and all pleasure dwell, his state is very undesirable and should be attacked at once. Here again, our philological arm has done good work. Try the word complacency on him. But of course, it is most likely that he's living in the present for none of these reasons, but simply because his health is good and he's enjoying his work. The phenomenon would then be merely natural. All the same, I should break it up if I were you. No natural phenomenon is really in our favor. In any way, why should the creature be happy? Your affectionate uncle, Scritane. Now, don't worry if you feel like you just missed all of that. This is a very dense letter, but we're going to try to unpack some of it. So, the first habit, uh, and there are more habits in this than usual, because he gives a lot of instruction in this letter about what the enemy wants to do, so we get more insight than usual. But the first thing is to consciously reject tortured fear and stupid confidence as states of mind. And these two scripture verses, there's no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
and then from Philippians, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So, consciously reject tortured fear and stupid confidence as states of mind. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand about this, but I would like to suggest that many of us live most of the time in one or the other of those. And I think particularly this is true for people who are younger. Uh, One of the things that has changed in our culture is that it used to be that you would see poems written about the halcyon days of youth, the carefree days of being a school child, going through high school, and then the happy times of college. And stress didn't really start until after you got a job. Well, um, those days are gone. Um, They are so burned out and stressed, and they thought the whole goal was to get into college because it was going to be so wonderful, and they get there, and it isn't. And so they realize they've been sold a bill of goods, and they just implode. So that is the, the sort of tortured fear side of that. There's also tortured fear that comes with adulthood. Am I going to have enough money? Will I be able to have enough money to retire? Will my health be good enough for me to enjoy my retirement? There's all of these things that we fear, and the problem is that we tend to be obsessed with these things. Um, Some of us have the opposite, which is stupid confidence, of um, just being confident that everything is going to be fine, although there's absolutely no evidence to support that belief. And we've done absolutely no work. This is like, and I'm sure none of us has ever done this or ever been related to anyone who's done this. But just imagine someone who is in college, shall we say, and is confident that they're going to find a great summer job that's going to make them lots of money during the summer, except they don't ever apply for a job. (laughs) They don't interview for a job. They don't call anyone about a job. And then finally they arrive at home for the summer and they are just sort of dumbfounded that there's no job there. Um, That's stupid confidence. So both of those are not places where you want your mind to be. And remember, we've talked a lot in this class about where you set your mind is so important. Scripture is so clear about that. And then the second thing that this letter tells us that's a habit to cultivate is attend to two things only. And attend, and this is, in this sense, is not a word that we use so often. This doesn't mean attend like attend a class and sit in the room. It means to pay close attention to to pay close attention to. Only two things, eternity and the present. And again, from the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. And then from Colossians 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So what Screwtape is telling Wormwood is you want to, at all cost, keep the patient away from thinking about eternity, from thinking about the kingdom of God, from focusing on the things of God or the joys of heaven or the certainty of Christ's kingdom. None of that. 
And you also don't want them to think about the present. You don't want, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, any kind of carpe diem sort of philosophy of seeing each day as an unbelievable gift from God that's full of 24 hours that you have agency to do with and consider in any way that you want. Instead, you should waste that being worried to death about whether you can pay your bills or being worried about your health or being worried about your grandchild or being worried about your girlfriend or being worried about that you don't have a girlfriend. Or, you know, we obsess with things that we worry about and we miss the joy of the present, which leads us to the third one. Um, and this is really unusual in this book. Um, he spells all of this out in the letter, which means we might want to pay attention. It's sort of like when Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you, and then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When Lewis spells it out like this, it means he thinks it's very important. So he says, proactively live in the present, the only place where freedom and actuality are offered. And freedom is the freedom to choose what you're going to do and how you're going to think about it and process it. Actuality is fully experiencing what you are in the midst of, seeing it as real with a capital R. And he lists a couple of ways to do this. One is to obey the present voice of conscience, to listen to your conscience, to listen to the Holy Spirit even, and what is being put on your heart, to bear the present cross, to not focus on the cross and wallow in it, but to bear it, to just move forward. Bearing means moving forward. Thirdly, receive the present grace. Look for the wonder, for the beauty, for the grace, for what you can be thankful for in that particular moment which leads to give thanks for the present pleasure. And this is the kind of perspective, it's kind of a trite truism where you hear people say, live every day as if it were your last. But there's a deep truth that's in that. Most things that are cliches are cliches because there's a truth buried in there somewhere. But part of the idea here is that you take each moment captive and give thanks for it and you're present in it. One of the things that is so interesting to me in this concept, I do a lot of um, preparation of people that are going to be getting married. And in our culture, in case you haven't been around a wedding lately, um, the wedding industry has become something truly frightening. And the amount of time and effort and resources that goes into a wedding is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, people work for 18 months um, doing all of these things. And the ironic thing is that the marriage ceremony, which is what the whole thing is actually about, usually only lasts about 20 minutes. And many, many, many people miss their own wedding because they're so worried about the dress, the reception, the band, the food, the mother-in-law, you know, all of those kinds of things that they miss what is one of the most important moments in their life because they are not 
in the present. So I spend a lot of time trying to work with them about how to be in the present to actually be fully present in that ceremony. But that's the kind of thing that most of us, I know I need to do more, and probably that most of you need to do as well, of trying to proactively lay aside all the things that we want to worry about and appreciate each day for the gift that it is. We live in a place where if your sense of wonder is dried up, it ought to be fairly easy to uh, water it a little bit so that it will bloom again. We are surrounded by beauty. And one of the things I was at a meeting today where we were just talking about what a wondrous thing it is to live in a city where there are church bells chiming. And that's something we probably don't think about a lot. But when you get behind what is making a church bell chime, it's a reminder that time is passing. It's also a reminder of beauty and music. It's coming from above. It's that whole vault of heaven thing. And then the usual big bell peals are at times where there's worship going on. So there's a whole subtext about bells that we usually just, you know, if anything, we're like, it's so annoying. I wish they'd be quiet because, you know, I can't hear what's on my podcast. Uh, So part part of this is learning to disengage from the stream of the culture and be present in the moment so that you appreciate it. Uh, The fourth habit, cultivate gratitude and love and be wary of fear, avarice, lust, and unhealthy ambition. And again, um, from Philippians, do not be anxious about anything. Do you notice there's a little theme here? (laughs) Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then from uh, 2 Timothy, I don't know how that at sign got in there. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So again, cultivates that big word. Uh, There's a lot in the press today about people not really understanding what farmers do. Um, There's a lot of truth to that. Our culture, in the South at least, everybody used to have somebody in their family that had a farm. Those days are gone. So we don't know what it means to cultivate a crop. We don't know what it means to harness up the plow, dig the furrow, plant the seed, water, pray for rain, pray for sun, you know, whatever it might be, um, and then watch the crop as it grows. But we are to cultivate both gratitude and love. It is very interesting if you look at statistics about complaining and venting in our culture. Venting has become a big thing in our culture now. Uh, But the interesting thing is that there's a lot of research that says complaining and venting, when you do it regularly, it actually rewires your brain. Brain imaging is a relatively new science, so there are a lot of things that weren't known 10 years ago that they're beginning to make hypotheses about now. But uh, the interesting thing is that there seems to be a statistical connection between complaining and being unhappy. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
Whereas gratitude is exactly the other way around. The people that practice gratitude uh, have a dramatically different viewpoint on life. And there was a New York Times bestseller about this um, a couple of years ago by a guy named John Kralik. I don't know if you remember that story. I always forget the name of his book. It's like something like 365 thank yous. But this guy, his life was falling apart. He was a lawyer, which is always not a good start. Uh, <laughs> I can say that having been one. Uh, but he was a lawyer. He had gained a lot of weight. His fiance dumped him. Um, he lost his job. And, and it was just like everything that could go wrong went wrong. And he was thinking about committing suicide. <coughs> but he got a thank you note from someone about something small that really just transformed his day. And it made him realize the power of somebody taking the time to say thank you. So he decided he was going to write really great about this. And in this section of Second Peter, he says, make every effort... To add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being (coughs) ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these are not salvific things. He's not talking about earn your salvation. But what he's saying is that if you want to be effective and productive, then you should look to how you can increase and add these things into your life. Rather than, remember that word complacency that was in the letter? It's all too easy to become complacent. And you never know what challenges are going to lie ahead. So, praying for these things, trying to live into these virtues, looking for people who can pour into you, who are going to help you grow to be a stronger person. Um, that, that is all to the good. If you see someone who you really admire that has a particular quality that you admire, that is a great opening to seek out time with that person and talk about that. And then lastly... Embrace natural happiness as a good thing. Remember that last line, after all, why should the creature be happy? And this is not um, happiness is the goal of life. That's not what he's talking about. But what he's saying is that there's a lot of ordinary happiness just in the simple pleasures of life. Being able to have a cool drink of water, being able to have a meal, being able to have a conversation being able to be with your family, all these things that um, we don't think of as big exotic pleasures. And this is one of the areas where, sorry, where I go on a little Tolkien thing for a moment, but um, one of the things that I think Tolkien gets so right in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings is this sort of simple happiness that you see in The Hobbits and The Shire. So if you've read that, you know what I mean. If you haven't read it, you should. Uh, so it is uh, just this idea that we, we take these things for granted and we don't appreciate, we don't embrace this natural happiness as a good thing. So um, this verse from Proverbs, he who heeds the word wisely will find good and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. 
This whole idea of trusting in the Lord and experiencing that natural happiness. Um, I wanted to just say a word about all of these handouts. We haven't had this many handouts in a while, but because this letter is so dense, um, I think that these will maybe help you unpack it a little bit. Uh, There's one, how can we give thanks in all circumstances, which is really good. Uh, Another, do not be anxious about your life. I would say anxiety is the besetting sin of our culture. Um, and we think that the, the way to deal with anxiety is therapist and medications. But scripture, and I don't want to belittle that because sometimes that's true, but scripture says there's a lot more to it than that. And that the real antidote is the Holy Spirit. Um, so do not be anxious. And then there also um, are some things in there about living. There's a great... Uh, article from Seton Review, uh, which is a Catholic journal, about what it means to live in the present that I would highly commend. But this is a great quotation um, that I would encourage you to think about out of this letter. The other thing that's sort of interesting about this, I always thought being hag-ridden was only in Gala culture. Um, and so it's so interesting to me to see C.S. Lewis talking about this, and it made me do some research. And it's actually an old English tradition that goes back to the Middle Ages about being ridden by a hag, which is almost identical to the Gala tradition about that, which is bizarre. But anyway, um, what he says here is, and this is Satan, we want a man hag-ridden by the future. Think about what that means. Hag-obsessed every moment about the future. Haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell on earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present, if by doing so we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other, dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes (coughs) whose end he will not live to see. And this is basically the idea that you think by your own actions you can bring about heaven or you can bring about hell and that you are absolutely committed to this course of action and because it is such a noble end you're so committed to the end that whatever means it takes to get there whether it means breaking every commandment in scripture it doesn't matter because you're pursuing this noble goal and that you are constantly looking to whether you're succeeding or failing in that scheme even though you will not live to see its end. So you've thrown yourself completely into this cause that you will never know whether it turned out the way you wanted or not. And therefore you have wasted the gift of every moment that God has given you. And then he says, we want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end. Can you ever get to the rainbow's end? No. Never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future, every real gift which is offered them in the present. And the idea is that every thing that you're given You're just using as fuel to heap on the altar of the future. Every gift, instead of appreciating it, you're throwing it into the fire of trying to reach this future 
said that your whole present is utterly wasted. And you will remember there was a quotation a few weeks ago that sort of pointed that out that said the whole scheme of screw tape and wormwood is to steal the patient's life and to give him nothing in return. So, the last little quotation, our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's <coughs> will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. And this also gets to that idea of what you do in the present moment matters so very, very much. So I encourage you, spend some time with this letter. Spend some time thinking about where you are on that continuum of living in uh, fear all the time or living in stupid confidence all the time or whether you actually are living in the present and cultivating that sense of joy and wonder and the gift that each day is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that is in this letter. Lord, we confess to you the pride and hypocrisy and anxiety and impatience of our lives. We pray that you would help us to slow down, as the poet said, to uh, seize the day, to smell the roses, to see the beauty of the sunlight on the drop of rain, Lord, to appreciate the simple joys and gifts of each day. Lord, we pray that you would help us to set our minds on things that are above where Christ is, that in all we do, we might cultivate joy, that we might cultivate